In August 1887, James Addison Rivas stepped off a train in Tucson. It had been a little over two years since he had appeared in public in Arizona, after having essentially snuck off from the combined pressure of public hatred and governmental indifference to his Peralta grant. But he had not been idle during these two years, having traveled back to San Francisco and then to New York, everywhere gathering more support and, of the utmost importance, more money. And his travels hadn't stopped there. He had even gone across the Atlantic to Spain, where he had been received with open arms and even more opened wallets. After being feted by the upper crust of the Iberian Peninsula, he had then gone on to Paris and London. Now, however, he had returned to the Arizona Territory and made a familiar journey. A little more than four years beforehand, he had first arrived in Tucson via train and made one of his first stops the office of the U.S. Surveyor General for the Territory. On this 1887 visit, he made a similar trip to the Surveyor General's office and again deposited documents. This time he put down a bulky volume bound in black leather, embossed with the ancient crest of the Peralta family, the supposed rulers of most of Arizona a century beforehand. However, here's the key difference. When Rivas submitted his second claim to the Peralta grant, he did not do it on behalf of himself. No, this time he submitted the claim on behalf of a young, intelligent, beautiful woman traveling with him, Doña Sofia Miquela Maso Rivas y Parrota de la Cordoba, who was none other than the third Baroness of Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 138, The Baron of Arizona, Part 4, The Baroness. Welcome back, everyone. I have to start off today by saying I hope you excuse the condition of my voice. It turns out having a baby in daycare means lots and lots of colds. I am recovering to the point where I can actually record, but it's going to sound a little rough today. Anyway, Last week, we brought Rivas up into the summer of 1885, when he quite literally smuggled himself out the back door to get out of Arizona before someone made good on their threat to lynch him from a saguaro. Public opinion was solidly against him. The newspapers uniformly derided him and his claims, and the U.S. government had shut down the investigation into the Peralta Grand by basically saying that they didn't think it looked legitimate. This might be the point where you or I or a lesser con man would give up and move on. Rivas had taken a shot and failed. It was time to move on or find a new scam. But Rivas was not like you or I or even a lesser con man. He had made real money off of the Peralta Grant and he was not willing to let it go so easily. So instead, he decided to double down on his web of lies and forgery. Still, Rivas was not an idiot. If he was going to try again, he was going to make sure his claim was airtight, or at least appeared airtight to everyone else. One move he made was to sneak back into Arizona without anyone knowing and travel into the Sierra Estrella Mountains with his head thug slash bodyguard Pedro Cuervo 
and the woman we will talk about in just a bit. If you will recall, part of the documentation that he had created spoke about an expedition in 1758 to delineate the grant, which resulted in the inscription of a seal on a large stone in this mountain range that marked the middle of the western edge of the grant. So Rivas determined that he would discover this stone, which would be near irrefutable evidence of the validity of his claim. He and Cuervo located such a rock that matched what was in the document, and any changes in position could be explained away either by natural erosion or Amerindian tribes moving it to disrupt the claim, and then they got to work. Using a chisel, Rivas inscribed the Peralta family crest and other markings into the rock, and then stained the new carvings and filed down the crisped edges to artificially weather it. All in all, it wasn't a bad job, and Rivas added this particularly hefty club to his bag. But the biggest change he made between his attempts to have the government recognize his claim was to invent a whole new person, an heir to the barony of Arizona. Unlike the two barons he had already created for his scheme, however, this heir was someone who was flesh and blood and could be shown off to the public, journalists, and heads of state wherever he went. The story of the Baroness Doña Sofia, who went by the name Carmelita, is one where it's nearly impossible to untangle fact from fiction. To understand where Carmelita fits in, we have to go back to Rivas's account of Don Miguel Silva Jesus de Peralta, the second baron, who was supposedly born in 1781 in Sonora. He had married in 1822 and would have his daughter and only child, Sophia, in 1832. And I mentioned this in our second episode about Rivas, episode 136. At the time, Rivas had intentionally left the second baron's later life vague, so as not to raise too many red flags that could be investigated. But obviously, that would no longer do. So he again leaned heavily into his talent for world-building and concocted a romantic, though convoluted story to connect Carmelita with her fictional grandfather. In this new telling, Don Miguel was the typical spoiled son of rich parents and wasted much of his inheritance before the turmoil of Mexican independence and war with the United States took a heavy toll on his fortunes. He and Sofia had also suffered greatly when his wife died just a few short years after giving birth to their daughter. But in 1860, when he was 79 years old and hounded by creditors, a dashing young man appeared seeking the hand of Sofia in marriage. This was José Ramón Carmen de Maso y Castilla, who was another wastrel scion of a prominent family and had lived in the United States as a professional gambler. Maso swept Sofia off her feet and also appears to have drained what little money his father-in-law, Don Miguel, had left. So Maso proposed that the family should make their way to California and from there sail to Spain to receive aid from their respected families and any debts the Spanish government owed to Don Miguel. In 1862, in the company of Maso's mother, the small family headed north. However, when they'd made it to roughly San Bernardino, California, a very pregnant Sofia suddenly went into labor, and with the help of a local midwife, gave birth to twins, a boy named Jose and a girl named Sofia, who would later become Carmelita. 
but both the mother and newborn son were in rough shape following the birth, and the children were hastily taken to be baptized in the local church of San Salvador. However, within 24 hours, both Sofia and her son Jose would be dead, leaving young Carmelita motherless. By now, Maso was truly desperate to get to Spain, and so arranged for his mother to care for young Carmelita and sent them both to Sherwood Valley in Mendocino County, northwest of Sacramento, to be housed by a good friend named John A. Treadway. Maso and Don Miguel continued to San Francisco, where the former sailed for Spain at once, but the latter was too ill of health to accompany him. Don Miguel, who remembers the second baron, would take occasional trips to see his granddaughter in Sherwood Valley before he was finally able to make the trip to Spain as well. Before he set sail, he made sure to write out his will, leaving everything to Carmelita, and just to make sure there was no mistake, he included documents outlining the boundaries of the Peralta grant. Thank heavens for his foresight, right? Otherwise, Rivas's chain of documentation would have a missing link, perish the thought. Okay, here's where things take a twist, because once in Spain, both Don Miguel and Maso would die very suddenly. And just a few short years later, both Carmelita's paternal grandmother and Mr. Treadway would also meet their respective ends. So little Carmelita would go to stay with first local rancher Alfred Sherwood, and later with a man named Captain John Snowball, who she would live with until she was 15, when it was decided that she should be educated in dressmaking to earn a living. Then, one spring day in 1877, Carmelita was traveling alone on a train when she spotted a dashing-looking man studying her features. He approached and asked her if she happened to know anyone by the last name of Maso, and in surprise, she replied why that was her name. Are you ready for this? That man was none other than James Rivas, who had been struck by her resemblance to a painting he had seen of the second baron's wife and simply had to know more about her life and family. Isn't that just the most amazing coincidence? Rivas would later state that as early as 1875, he had heard of a lost heir to the Peralta Grant, a little girl that had been spirited away to San Francisco or some other such corner of California. And again, According to his later statements, it took him some time to find irrefutable proof that this striking young lady he had randomly spotted on a train was, in fact, Doña Sofia Michaela Maso Parata de la Cordoba, the Baroness of Arizona. The two kept in touch, and in the romantic tone of the entire story, they soon fell in love, and on December 31st, 1882, Rivas and Carmelita were wed in a civil ceremony by a San Francisco notary. Now, this is a very moving story in and of itself, but what are we to make of it? Well, to be quite frank, we know that all of this is just more lies thrown onto an already sizable pile of bull. There are so many weak points in this story that it's hard to know exactly where to start poking holes. One of the first things I should point out is that there is no evidence that Rivas and Carmelita met as early as 1877, and that the whole record we have of their meeting and courtship comes from their own statements, which are of dubious ferocity. I should also point out that at the time they were wed, Rivas was actually still technically married to Ada Pope, whom he had married in 1874, and who would not get a divorce from him until 1883. 
From there, we can dive into a fair amount of inconsistencies, usually found in statements made by the Baroness herself. For example, in one widely circulated interview, she managed to both mess up her own family name and say that she was her parents' only child, apparently forgetting her tragically deceased twin brother. In later years, it would be discovered that the man she was said to have been originally entrusted to, Joseph Treadway, had actually died in 1861, the year before she had been born. Also, the whole meaning on a train to standing at the altar part of the story is never really fleshed out, with there being very little evidence in their own statements that the pair saw each other more than occasionally. And I realize that in the age of internet dating, I have to admit that these things happen, but one really does have to question how much love can bloom with just some letters and infrequent visits. Finally, there is the fact that Maso and the second Baron decided to sail to Spain from San Francisco when the busy port of Guaymas was so much closer and the more logical choice. But the biggest thing about this whole story is how much it clashes with the original tale spun by Rivas. In that telling, Miguel Peralta, the second Baron, was a down-on-his-luck old man living in a mining camp in Black Canyon in the 1860s when he sold his claim to Willing before moving on to somewhere else and dying. But in this new version, he was living in San Francisco in the 1860s with plans to sail for Spain to gather funds and claim what was his. So how does Rivas square these two stories? Author E.H. Cookridge says that if he could have, Rivas probably would have given up on the whole story of the willing claim after it was apparent that the government and the populace of Arizona were not going to accept it. However, he had submitted papers related to that story when he had filed his original claim, so he couldn't just take it back now without everyone being able to prove through his own documentation that he was a big fat liar. After being forced to flee from Arizona and deciding to go with the idea of finding a long-lost heir to his grant, Rivas had to do some fancy mental gymnastics. And I have to say, he doesn't really stick the landing. In the new story, Miguel Peralta has about a two-year window where he is in San Francisco before sailing to Spain. So Rivas basically said, hey, during that time he went to Arizona in a last-ditch bid to claim his father's land where he met Willing and signed over everything. He never really explained why he signed over everything to Willing when he had supposedly written a perfectly valid and legal will giving everything to his granddaughter, but let's not dwell too much on that, shall we? I mean, Rivas sure didn't. The natural question you are probably asking at this point is, if the whole story is fake, then who exactly was Carmelita? Furthermore, how did she actually fall in with Rivas and what was her motivation in all this? Unfortunately, that is now impossible to know. Whether she was a willing accomplice or someone handpicked to play the role of the Baroness, for the rest of her life, Carmelita would stick by the story that Rivas told, though she did seem to have a bad habit of altering details here and there each time she told it. But she would always insist that she was none other than the heir to the Peralta Grant and a Baroness in her own right. Her real identity is something of a mystery, but there are a plethora of theories about where she came from. Early state historian James H. McClintock says, in very un-PC terms, that it was more than likely she was a mixed-race woman who had lived on an Amerindian reservation her entire life and had no connection to Mexican history at all. 
Author and researcher Donald M. Powell writes that a San Francisco newspaper tried to verify her identity, but everyone they talked to near Sherwood Valley said that they always thought she was the product of a dalliance between Treadway, her supposed caretaker, and an Amerindian woman. Cookridge also says other theories have crept up, including Carmelita actually being a full-blooded Amerindian who was taken after a massacre of either the Navajo or the Apache, or that her Amerindian mother had left her at the steps of a mission church after her Mexican father had abandoned them, or that she was the illegitimate daughter of a prominent Mexican government official that had paid a California farmer to watch over her and keep it all secret. Suffice it to say, Carmelita was probably one of thousands of orphaned, forgotten souls that were scattered all across the West. The only thing that differentiated her from innumerable contemporaries doomed for obscurity in a pauper's grave is that Rivas found her. Later in life, Rivas would drop a few hints about her background, including how, before he could introduce her to high society, he had to go full Henry Higgins on her. He apparently made a sizable donation to the convent of San Luis del Rey, and the mother superior took in Carmelita to give her a crash course in hygiene, etiquette, reading, and writing. Finally, Carmelita Doolittle had all the outward signs of being a lady of some sophistication and education, and it was time to take this show on the road. Well, I should say that first Rivas made sure to shore up his story about the heiress. So he went to the Church of San Salvador in San Bernardino and requested permission to peruse the records. One of the younger, more inexperienced priests actually lent Rivas the baptism and burial book. And so the baron once again plied his trade, removing the pages for all seven of the infants recorded in the first six months of 1862. Then, using some blank pages that were at the end of the book, he replaced the missing pages with those of his own make. Five of the names on this were still correct, but two of them had been swapped out for Carmelita's and her brother's. Using similar methods, he also slipped Carmelita's mother and brother into the burial registry. Finished with this task, he paid a local barber to return the books to the church. This was a fine job, and the baron did it quite well, but he did make one fatal mistake. The church also had another register. This one an indexed ledger which contained an alphabetized list of all the names of the people born, baptized, married, or buried in a given year. Rivas was unaware of this second register that now did not match the books he had borrowed. This is a ticking time bomb that would explode in about a decade's time, but for now the would-be baron patted himself on the back for essentially creating a person out of nothing. But his con was not complete because he decided that if the Mexican documents he had already forged were not enough, he would go back further and forge even more documents. And that meant taking his new baroness all the way back to the mother country of Spain itself. Making his rounds around San Francisco, Rivas collected as much money as he could from his friends and allies. The Southern Pacific Railroad had lost interest in him and his claim by this time, as it had made peace with the Texas and Pacific Railroad, but Rivas still managed to sweet-talk some of its leading men to both start up a company to develop the grant and put him on a pretty decent stipend. He also agreed, generously, to head to New York and use his connections there to sell interest in his new development company. 
and he did a bang-up job, once again schmoozing with the leading political and business leaders of the day. He signed agreements with many of them to back his grant, and one man, John W. McKay, who had discovered the fabulously wealthy Comstock silver deposits in Nevada, even paid Revis a huge lump sum of money and a salary of $500 a month while he was in Spain searching for further evidence. Finally, Rivas set sail for Spain in December 1885, landing in Cadiz before Christmas. The one curiosity of this journey is that he and Carmelita didn't travel as husband and wife, but she was his ward as she made a trip to the mother country to see the land of her ancestors. Rivas would later explain this away as an attempt to avoid shadowy enemies of the Baroness going so far as to claim that agents of the U.S. government had been about trying to stop them from reaching their destination. To this was even added colorful stories about the trunk carrying all the couple's precious documents showing Carmelita's family history being accidentally offloaded at a stop, and then its long, convoluted journey to Madrid. And that included the place where the trunk was supposed to be mysteriously catching fire one night. Just so you didn't start thinking that these enemies weren't real, which... By the way, they weren't. Once they were safely in Madrid, it became apparent that Rivas had certainly done his homework. He had made connections among the upper class in America who could give him introductions in Spain, and he had systematically searched out noble Spanish families that he could plausibly claim were Carmelita's relations. Some of these old houses went back hundreds of years, and so it wasn't totally inconceivable that a long-lost American cousin should suddenly make contact. Specifically, he found an Ibarra and Peralta family and presented Carmelita as said American cousin. He even convinced a general named Carlos Ibarra that he was Carmelita's uncle, although technically the relationship would have been more something akin to second or third cousins once removed. Then, as his wife went off to spend time with all her all-too-recently-discovered family, Rivas sat down to do exactly what he'd come to Spain to do. Traveling first to Seville and then back to Madrid, Rivas passed himself off as an American historian and was given full access to the voluminous archives that contained hundreds of decrees and edicts related to land grants in the New World. Essentially, he now had before him a veritable smorgasbord of documents to copy, alter, steal, and replicate. Some of the most essential documents he would create were the ones referencing the marriage of Carmelita's fictitious parents, just so there were no questions as to her legitimacy. But of paramount importance was a codicil added to the final will of the second baron, which left everything to his sole granddaughter Carmelita, and also helpfully contained a clause that specifically outlined the Peralta grant and asked his heir to pursue her rightful claim to it. However well-forged these documents were, Rivas wanted to take things a step further, so he even dug around in Madrid and produced a slew of portraits that he decided to claim were from the Peralta family in the New World. Sure, he's a sleazeball of a con man, but you have to admire his attention to detail. Just like he had done in San Bernardino, he had managed to slip masterfully done forgeries into the archives in Spain, so if anyone went searching for evidence of the Peralta Grant, it was right there to be discovered. He did wind up having a couple close shaves, however. 
First of all, one of the archivists assigned to assist him searched for proof of his Peralta family, but kept coming up empty. Then Rivas suddenly announced that he had found one of the documents he sought inside of a certain bundle of papers. The archivist, familiar with this stack, was then shown a piece of paper that he had never seen before and he knew had not been previously in that bundle. When he reported this, the archives began to watch Rivas more closely. Then, on a return trip to Seville, an attentive clerk witnessed Rivas trying to covertly push a document into an envelope. The clerk alerted the curator, and eventually the police themselves became involved with Rivas claiming he merely wanted to borrow the document for a few days. Eventually, the whole thing would be smoothed over thanks to all his high-class contacts, but it's one of the few times that Rivas would be caught red-handed during his entire scheme. In 1886, Rivas and Carmelita would make a splash again when they announced to her quote-unquote family their betrothal. The family was overjoyed and celebrated with a huge party. Her newly found uncle gave away the bride and lent the couple a yacht with which to celebrate their honeymoon. I'm sure everyone involved would have loved to know that the couple had actually been married for about four years at this point, but why let the facts get in the way of a chance for people to wine and dine you? From this point onward, Rivas would refer to himself as James Peralta Rivas, taking the last name of his wife's family because, under Spanish custom, he was entitled to style himself as the Baron de Peralta y Córdoba. However, out of deference to the American abhorrence towards titles of nobility, he settled for just taking the last name Peralta. And this might be a small bit, but technically Rivas would never call himself Baron, even during the periods when he was riding the highest. Others would call him by that title, mostly derisively, but he himself would never use it. After this sham wedding, Rivas was riding very high. He was making headway with all sorts of movers and shakers, whether they be financial or political. The most impressive moment must have been when he and his wife were invited to celebrate the birth of the heir apparent to the throne of Spain and the appointment of his mother as queen regent. This actually would lead to Carmelita being invited to have a private audience with the Queen Regent to discuss America and the West. Such an opportunity might have been a high watermark for the former streetcar conductor from St. Louis, but things continued to go up. All his Spanish contacts suddenly turned up a fascinating opportunity. They could introduce Rivas and his wife to high society in London, where there were probably more than a few fish willing to bite at his offer to develop land in far-off Arizona. So Rivas and Carmelita packed their bags, hitting Paris as they wound their way to England. Here, again, he did what he did best, charmed everyone so thoroughly that no one thought twice to question his credentials. This was 1887, which also happened to be the year of Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, so they eagerly joined in on some of the celebrations. Along the way, they would also become acquaintances of the Prince of Wales or the future Edward VII. Then the stars aligned yet again, and soon the couple had an actual invite to Buckingham Palace. This would not be a private interview like the one Carmelita had back in Spain, but still, they actually met Queen Victoria. I don't know why, but to me that's one of the wildest factoids about this whole scheme. But just when everything seemed to be going his way, Rivas received worrying news from back home. 
his crooked attorney, Cyril Barrett, wrote him to let him know that George Willing Sr.'s hand-fisted attempt to capitalize on the Peralta grant, which we talked about last week, had kept the people of Arizona stirred up about the mere possibility of the claim. People were still meeting to decry Revis, and newspapers were putting pressure on the U.S. government to just declare this one giant fraud already. They also suggested that criminal charges for fraud should be filed against Revis personally. Then another note arrived from another one of his attorneys that Mary Ann Willing, the widow of the man he had bought the claim from, was also trying to stir up trouble. She was making some loud noises that she still needed to receive the $30,000 promised to her by Revis when he had bought all the rights from her. And lastly, and probably the most troubling, were the cables he now received from various businessmen and bankers who had all fronted Revis some cash to develop his grant, but had not heard anything from him in months. His lawyers all started begging him to come home and deal with these issues in person. So even though he was living it up in London and had a mansion being prepared for his return in Spain, in 1887, Revis and Carmelita packed up everything on an ocean liner and set a course for New York. And I'm going to leave things here for this week, as Revis prepares for his second round of fighting government officials and shrugging off the anger of Arizona citizens who were quick to call him a fraudster. But join me next week as Revis kicks off Act 2 of his grand land scheme, which switched focus from swindling small-time landowners in Arizona to swindling big businesses and government officials. However, the return of an old foe would start the downhill spiral that will eventually unravel all of Revis's carefully constructed plot and land the would-be baron in prison. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.